right, well, we will be continuing in our Sunday School series covering the book Councils and Thoughts for the Spiritual Life of Believers by Thomas More. Um, We've already covered a few chapters, but if you haven't already picked up a copy, I would certainly recommend it. It, It's a great book, uh, very easy to read. I know Pastor Fry said this before, but uh, very easy to read, but very edifying and very deep at the same time. Uh, It's been you know, there's been a number of challenges for me as I've read through it to, to really think upon these things that uh, Thomas More is saying, and, and it's been really good. Uh, so definitely would recommend you pick up a copy if you haven't already. Uh, today we'll be continuing uh, through the book. We'll be covering uh, not necessarily chapters 4 through 7 like I had on the title slide. We'll um, only be covering a couple of those chapters today, and then Lord willing, Next Sunday, we'll cover the other two chapters. Uh, Just a few comments, I guess, before we get started uh, on the order of things, just to to help explain sort of why we've been skipping around. Um, You know, Pastor Fry and I have been both working through this book and working through different chapters, and we have skipped around a little bit just based on how timing has worked, um, but also based on the length of the chapters, if you've read through the book, you probably have noticed that some chapters are very short and others are longer. So we've tried to uh, sort of balance things out so that we budget our time well on Sundays and, and cover the material without feeling like um, we're having to rush through things and miss things. We want to make sure that we're spending enough time on the topics that we are. So that's part of the reason why we've been uh, jumping around a bit. And uh, in that same vein, today we'll also be jumping around a bit. Um, We're actually going to hit chapters 4 and 7 this Sunday, and then next Sunday we'll come back and, Lord willing, cover chapters 5 and 6. Again, a lot of that is for the same reasons, trying to to manage the time in the best way so that we're not having to rush through anything. Uh, Then also, I think what you'll see is thematically, chapters 4 and 7 actually do tie well together, and and certainly 5 and 6 do. Um, So I I think it will make sense as we walk through it, uh, sort of how how I've got it structured there. But just taking a step back for a second uh, and talking about the book in general, as we've noted a number of times, this is a book written by Thomas More, uh, written to believers. He's, He's titled it, Counsels and Thoughts for the Spiritual Life of Believers. Right? So his concern is the, the believer and their walk with Christ. And he has it divided up into uh, multiple sections. And so the section we're in is section one. Obviously, we've just started here recently, or he calls them parts. But if you look at you know, the different parts, the first part of the book that we're in is called Counsels and Thoughts Concerning the Believers Standing in Full Salvation. So he's talking about the believer's salvation, you know, standing in full salvation, and also the believer's assurance of that salvation. What we'll talk about here in chapters 4 through 7 and, and others as well um, is really, uh, I guess, really encouraging from the standpoint that Moore is addressing a, a topic that's of great importance to all of us, and that is assurance of the Christian salvation. So we'll continue to come back to that theme 
as we go through the chapters, but just wanted to sort of lay that groundwork so that we have the right reference of mind when we're thinking about you know, what, is, what is the general you know, kind of theme that Moore is following here. All right, so with all that said, we'll go ahead and get started with chapter four. Now, in chapter four, Moore as, uh, sorry, one more administrative thing. <laughs> when all of the quotes I have on these slides are either from Moore or you know their, their scripture references with the scripture noted. So if you don't see a scripture reference, just know that this is taken from the book, from Moore. Um, yeah, at the beginning of chapter four, Moore starts off like he does so many times with a very quotable uh, statement, but a very profound statement that helps set up what he's going to talk through in the remainder of the chapter. So chapter four opens off with this. He says, infinite wisdom as well as infinite love guides the Lord Jesus in all his doings. And thus it is, he sees it best for his own glory and our good that his, his doings should at times be so adverse to our own desires for ourselves. All things, the bitter and the sweet, are from the hands of him who makes all work together for our good. So here Moore is reminding us that the Lord orders his doings or his providence in ways that often run contrary to our own desires, which I don't think is uh, foreign to any of us. We all understand that concept that God often does not act in the way that we would desire for him to act. Um, but that's because the Lord is infinite in wisdom and we're not. Uh, he's infinite in wisdom and infinite in love. And so the Lord knows best, you know, what needs to happen, what should take place. And, you know, praise God that the Lord is sovereign and we are not. The Lord orders uh, all, all things in accordance with his wisdom and with his love. And we know that that ultimately works out to the good for all of those who are called according to his purpose, as it says in Romans chapter 8. So, Moore sets up the chapter like that to remind us that, you know, he's going to talk about, you know, this type of topic where, where the Lord's wisdom is greater than ours and the, the Lord is doing things that are, that are right and we need to remember that just because we don't like them, that, <laughs> that doesn't give us an excuse not to be grateful. Uh, we should always remember that the Lord's wisdom is greater than ours in all things. So then, Moore continues, he says, uh, There is no cause to fear that he will ever forsake you, neither is there any cause to fear that you will lose the consciousness of your hope in his salvation, so long as you take your stand upon your need as a sinner, and do not go off that to self-doings or feelings, whereby to recommend yourself to him, or encourage your hope in him. So because we know that the Lord is infinite in wisdom and love for his elect, we know that there's no reason to ever fear that he would forsake us. This is sort of how Moore is making this tie. If we keep his faithfulness, the Lord's faithfulness, as our central focus, and we put our hope in him, then we also have no fear of losing the consciousness of our hope for salvation. It's only when we start looking away from his faithfulness and let our focus drift uh, to our own emotions or our own uh, 
obedience to his commandments, our own faithfulness toward him, that's when we begin to lose that assurance of salvation because obviously we're not obedient to him. We continually fail. And so, you know, as soon as our focus starts to move away from Christ and his faithfulness to our faithfulness, that's when we start to lose that hope for salvation or we start to um, have doubts. Um, We'll continue to unpack this as we go through uh, in the uh, coming chapters and next Sunday. But uh, what Moore is putting here in front of us is something that almost sounds like a paradox. What he's saying is essentially that as believers, the lower our opinion of ourselves, the greater our assurance of salvation. Stick with me on that because it sounds a little strange, but... You know, I think Moore does a really good job of bringing this out in his chapter. Uh, you know, his next statement there is, the worse a sinner is in his own sight, the more is he welcome to Christ, and the more is he suited to Christ's office as a Savior. The better a sinner tries to be, and hope thereby of coming with more confidence to Christ for salvation, the further off will he be, and the more will doubt and darkness fill his mind, if he be a truly awakened sinner. So again, more here is talking about the true believer, someone who has genuine faith and has demonstrated genuine repentance in God. For that person, the worse off they are in their own sight, the more assurance they'll have of salvation because the worse off they are in their own sight, the more they will flee to Christ and put their hope in him alone for their salvation and not be trusting in any way on their own merit for salvation. It's only whenever we start to trust in ourselves, start to um, look to our own faithfulness, our own following of God's commandments, or doing the things that we feel are good, it's only when we start to trust in those things and have that sense of pride that we start to, to no longer depend upon God in the same way that we did before. We start thinking that we've got things under control. We, you know, we're, we're doing good. We, we feel good about ourselves. And all the while, we're becoming more estranged from God by often, you know, you could probably think of examples um, in your own life, not praying as often as we should, not reading the word as often as we should, not going to God and saying, Lord, I put everything I have before you. I have nothing, you know, of myself to get to offer Um, And then eventually, uh, we fall off of that high horse, right? Inevitably, we, you know, our our sin comes before us, we are convicted of it, and we realize that we've wandered off quite a long distance. So I think that's what Moore is getting at here, is essentially having that continual remembrance of sin, that continual brokenness over sin, keeps us in close relationship and right relationship with God if we're continuing to come before him and repenting of that sin. And when we do that, that tends to result in the greatest assurance of our salvation. It's when we, you know, start to trust in ourselves in any way, even a small way, that we start to lose that assurance because we lose that closeness and dependence upon God. Moore has another really great uh, you know, quote, as he so often does. 
uh, in this chapter, he says, it's not the sinner trying to be religious or trying to be better, but the trembling sinner that is suited to Christ and finds salvation in him. And I like that phrase, the, the trembling sinner. I think that's a, a really good one. Um, but indeed, it is a trembling sinner in full recognition of his sin and the wrath of God that is due for that sin who will place his entire hope for salvation in Christ and in his righteousness that he gives to those whom he saves. It's that sinner who is able to have true assurance of salvation. And we must remember to continually call to mind that our salvation is all of God. And when uh, Moore talks about the trembling sinner, it's, you know, involved in that term, you can imagine, is fear and reverence for God, but also trusting upon God, right? That God is working out salvation for us. You know, we can recall in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, that's one of the great passages talking about salvation being all a work of God. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We know that our salvation is entirely a work of God, and because God doesn't change, neither does our salvation. That's where we find assurance. Again, uh, another passage, and this one, you know, you may have your mind may have gone there whenever you, you know, read or heard uh, the term the trembling sinner, but in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure." So there we see explicitly this concept of the trembling sinner, where God instructs us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, because in reality, it's God who is working in us to will and to work. Why? For his good pleasure. So this passage is one of the most concise, but also instructive passages in Scripture describing how we experience salvation. We're called to work out our own salvation, or as Peter says, um, to confirm our calling and election. Um, but we're to do that with great humility, you know, fear and trembling, as Paul says here, uh, because we know that even our own actions are in accordance with God's will and in accordance with his decrees, which he's made to work together for his good pleasure. And so Moore sort of anticipates the next question that may come, and I'll admit it's sort of what I started to think about whenever I was reading through this, uh, and you may have as well. And he says, you know, he basically addresses the question of what about sanctification, right? If I'm saved, shouldn't I be growing in grace or uh, increasing in righteousness, becoming more like Christ? Because uh, Scripture clearly teaches that that's the case. Um, and so he, he addresses this partially. He says, The question of growth and grace 
does not touch the question of salvation, for that is settled before grace begins to grow. That salvation is always unchangeable, and the believer's experience of it should be unchangeable also. It would be if he were always content to rest only on God's testimony concerning it. So, more, you know, he'll come back to this again later in chapters 5 and 6, but even here, he makes it a point to say, you know, yes, of course, there will be growth in grace, but we still need to remember that the question of salvation is already settled, you know, before we even begin to grow in grace. Um, And while our growth in grace will vary over time, our status of being a redeemed sinner, a beloved child of God, will not. So, you know, again, Moore is trying to help us remember where we find our hope of assurance of salvation. Um, It's, you know, yes, you know, we can have another discussion about the believer's growth in grace, but it's not that growth in grace that saves us. We're saved by the blood of Christ, and that is, you know, that salvation is complete. Um, Moore continues, he says, all the trials and afflictions the believer meets with in this life are for the promotion of growth and grace, and in the true knowledge of self and of Christ and of our covenant God and Father. But this growth is much hindered if anything be allowed to dim the assurance of that salvation which is God's free gift to awakened sinners. So indeed, we do well to remember that the trials and afflictions we experience in this life, even the doubts we experience, are used by God to promote growth and grace and the true knowledge of self and of Christ and of our covenant God and Father, as Moore says here. Um, But this is separate from the perfect salvation that is already ours in Christ. So if we can keep this in mind, this helps avoid a lot of hindrances to our assurance of salvation and even to our sanctification. Um, you know, more calls this, you know, God's free gift to awaken sinners. Indeed, that's what it is. It's a free gift. And so, you know, more actually in this last little bit sort of turns it on its head and and says, or turns the question of sanctification on its head and points out that really it's whenever we start to look to our own faithfulness and put you know, too much weight on that as you know, our, our focus or put too much of our focus on it, uh, that's when we start to lose our assurance of salvation because our faithfulness was never the source of our salvation in the first place. So you know, the best thing or the only thing that we need to do is to look to Christ and to continue to come back to him in repentance and faith um, and trust in him for our salvation because he's the one who has accomplished it on our behalf. And when we fail to keep that as our focus, when we start getting drawn away by thoughts of, you know, am I believing the right way? Am I faithful enough? Uh, Our assurance is hindered. We lose our focus on Christ, and then, in effect, that actually can be a hindrance toward our sanctification, toward our growing in grace, because now we're focused on, you know, just thinking over and over again about, you know, am I saved, as opposed to resting in the salvation we have in Christ, and then going out and doing what he's commanded, you know, going about and going about the business of 
following Christ and sharing the gospel with others, you know, obeying his commandments. So it ends up becoming sort of a cycle there where, you know, this doubt leads to a lack of uh, obedience to Christ or a lack of following him, lack of action, and then that leads to more doubt. So again, that's why Moore is trying to pull us out of that cycle and put our focus on, you know, the true source of our salvation, and that is Christ. That's uh, chapter 4, and now, as I mentioned before, we're going to skip down to chapter 7 before coming back, Lord willing, to chapters 5 and 6 next week. Um, In chapter 7, it's titled, Concerning the Difference Between the Religion of the Natural and the Spiritual Man. And so it may sound like it, you know, is a very different topic from chapter 4, and in some ways it is, but there are a lot of ties uh, thematically here, and I think you'll see that as we walk through that. So let's go ahead and continue on into chapter 7 here. Um, You know, Moore brings up these categories, right? The natural man versus the spiritual man. When we talk about those two categories, our thoughts might go to passages such as 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 or Romans chapter 8. Where, uh, where Paul is talking about the difference between these two types of people. In First Corinthians, just as a reminder, in First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, uh, Paul writes, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So he's drawing the distinction between the natural person who doesn't understand the things of God versus the spiritual person who does because that person has been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. And in Romans chapter 8, particularly in verses 1 through 8, there at the beginning of the chapter, Paul talks about the difference between those who are in the flesh, walking in the flesh, unable to please God, if you recall, versus those who are in the spirit and who are made spiritually able to please God. So Paul draws a distinction there as well. Well, I just raise those to sort of, you know, get our mind kind of in the right place when we're talking about natural versus spiritual man. Uh, although, you know, what we see here is that Moore's focus, uh, his particular focus, is a little bit different maybe than what Paul had in, in either of those chapters. Uh, what Moore is addressing here is essentially the difference between two types of people. But both of these people profess to be Christians. Both of them externally may appear to be very similar to anyone observing them. Um, But on the one hand, you have the natural man who is not regenerate. And on the other hand, you have the spiritual man who is. And so let's look at what Moore says, and then we'll sort of talk through that contrast that he's developing here for us. Uh, Moore says, To the natural man, even when religiously inclined, the most important teachings of the gospel are but the dogmas of a creed in which he professes his belief. But he that is spiritual is never satisfied unless these teachings become to him the channel of heavenly blessing. The one is content with the acknowledgement that Christ is all he professes to be and that his teachings are true and to be fully received. The other acknowledges all this, but 
cannot be content unless Christ becomes the salvation, the strength, and the joy of his soul. It's just a, a beautiful statement there by Moore. But we can see the picture here that Moore is providing us, and it involves two individuals, both of whom know God's word, clearly, both of whom even believe the gospel. Both of them believe that Christ is who he said he is and has done what he said he has done. The key difference between the two individuals is that while both of them have had their minds open to the truth of the gospel, for one, this is merely an intellectual exercise, believing these truths, while the other individual has been given a new heart. And that heart is consumed with a desire to make Christ its all in all, or as Moore says, to have Christ become his salvation, strength, and the joy of his soul. Now, this is a hard teaching for us, I think, particularly in our culture, because we've been so heavily influenced by teachings such as easy believism or anti-lordship salvation, or even other teachings that are sort of adjacent to that. Um, but essentially, you know, repentance has been either down, very much downplayed or just completely eliminated from the gospel message. Uh, you know, there is no message about brokenness over sin or, you know, a reorientation of one's life resulting from a heart that's been transformed by the Holy Spirit. And there are, you know, many other teachings where essentially the gospel is being watered down to the point where it's no longer the gospel. Um, it's become little more than believe in God and you will be saved. But that's not the gospel that was taught by Jesus or his apostles. And unfortunately, since we have, you know, in so many cases watered down this gospel in, in churches throughout this country and others even, uh, you know, many people in churches are standing, you know, with confidence that they're saved when in reality they've never actually heard the gospel and they're still under God's wrath. They've never actually come to repentance and a true saving faith. And that's what Moore's trying to draw out here. Uh, the difference between someone who has, you know, intellectually or men mentally assented to these truths and embraced them versus the person who's actually been born again, who's been given a new heart and filled with, you know, a brokenness over sin, repentance from sin, and a true and lasting faith in Christ. A couple of Bible verses we could uh, go to that address these, uh, or this type of topic again, or, uh, you know, for example, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, the familiar passage there, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, you know, there we have the example where Christ is saying there are people who will proclaim his lordship, who will do works in his name, but they, they aren't truly repentant of their sin. They aren't truly saved. They haven't been made anew by the Lord. 
And then again in John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, when Nicodemus comes to visit him, Jesus says that, you know, great and familiar phrase, you know, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So again, we're not saved by knowing the truth. We're saved by being born again. We're saved by a supernatural work of God in breaking our hearts of stone and giving us hearts of flesh and bringing us to repentance. And that results in, you know, a continual repentance from sin. You know, it may, uh, you know, vary in in, uh, intensity from from time to time. You know, certainly our uh, faith will uh, vary, you know, over time as far as how, um, you know, faithful we are to God, how um, close we are in drawing unto him in prayer. But the point is that 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 faith and repentance will be continual. So again, as we go through the chapter, Moore really doubles down on this particular theme. He says, A correct creed, however well expressed or firmly maintained, does not constitute a man a true believer. For he may possess a perfect creed without possessing that spiritual life, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is peculiar to the true believer. Now, as a church here at GFBC where we do have a confession of faith and we have a very strong appreciation of just how important it is to have a very robust and clear confession of faith, now this type of statement could be slightly offensive to us, saying that you know, having you know, a correct creed does not constitute a man a true believer. Um, but what Moore is saying is simply that holding to a good and biblical confession of faith alone does not save anyone. Uh, there are many people out there who enjoy talking about theology, studying theology, you know, working through sort of the intellectual and philosophical aspects of the faith. But if it's only ever an intellectual exercise, then it does no good for your soul. We know in uh, Matthew chapter 9, uh, when Jesus is addressing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, he, he makes this statement um, that you know, shines some light on this you know, kind of topic. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. And there, you know, it's not a perfect analog, but you know, similarly Jesus is saying, you know, it's not, you know, knowing God's law, following God's law, going through all these motions, even appreciating the goodness of these things that saves anyone. It's true faith and repentance, which leads to, you know, in this case, you know, mercy. In, in this case, um, you know, actually showing mercy to others because you appreciate the mercy that God has shown to you for your sin. And so going back to uh, the chapter here, uh, Moore continues, This spiritual life is one of self-consciousness, apart from all rites, ceremonies, or creeds. True, the believer has a creed, but he has behind that creed a new life. His creed may be very imperfect, but the new life is still there. 
An imperfect creed may hinder its full manifestation, but can never cause its destruction. So here Moore is making several salient points. Um, First of all, uh, he's making the point that yes, creeds are important. He's not saying that they don't matter. They clearly do. Creeds are important. Uh, So he, he makes that point so that we can't try to you know, go down that road. Uh, at the same time, though, secondly, uh, he makes the point that while the believer does have a creed, it's not the adherence to a perfect creed that saves the believer, but rather it is a new life that is the free gift of God. And so, third, more goes as far as to say that the believer may even have an imperfect creed, but, you know, this does not necessarily mean that one is not saved. It may serve as a hindrance to the spiritual life of that believer if their creed is imperfect. But again, no one is saved by adhering to a perfect creed. We're saved by God's grace and by the work of the Spirit, by Christ's work, his passive and obedience, passive and active obedience. And so... That's the point that Moore's getting at here, is that we need to remember what is the source of our salvation, and we can't elevate the importance of creeds and confessions and adherence to the perfect creed to the point where we say that that is in any way you know, the basis for our salvation. Now, obviously, there are certain tenets that we would say we do have to hold to to be a, a true Christian. You know, that's fair. Um, yes, there you know, is at least... Uh, you know, we can at least say that you have to have, you know, a creed that includes certain tenets to have a true faith in God. You have to actually know who he is. Um, You can't, you know, believe something that is heretical. But at the same time, you know, we have to be careful not to extend that out to every possible, um, you know, belief that we hold. You know, we've talked before about the different you know, types of belief, uh, you know, the, the core gospel principles versus secondary issues that there may be room for disagreement on, but, uh, you know, that would be result in division of believers, you know, inability to, to be in a church together, for example, and then the, you know, what's referred to as the adiaphora, the tertiary, you know, third-tier issues that are, that are smaller things that we can disagree on. We have to be careful not to make those principal gospel issues or, or treat, you know, sorry, we need to be careful not to treat those tertiary, you know, uh, smaller issues with the same importance that we do the gospel issues. And so I think that's what Moore is really trying to get at here is that, you know, we can have room for disagreement on certain things. Uh, we need to be careful not to, you know, while we're saying that creeds and confessions are important, we need to be careful not to elevate you know, every single doctrine to the level of, you know, thou shalt believe this in order to be saved. Uh, and the problem with that is that it it takes our focus away from our true source of salvation, right? That's what Moore is really trying to continue to bring us back to in these chapters is the, the source of our salvation is Christ and his work and not, you know, anything good in us and not even our ability to have a perfect and right understanding 
of God because none of us do understand everything about God. We can only know what he's revealed to us. And so here at the end of the chapter, um, Moore makes another uh, statement that I had to you know, kind of go back and read through a couple of times just to sort of uh, make, make sure I got it and make sure I was on board because at first it you know, kind of hit me the first time and I thought, oh, I, I need to, to go back and study that a little harder to make sure I understand what he's saying here. But um, let's go ahead and read through it and then I'll talk about it really quickly. Uh, he says, the more excellent a mere natural man is, the less of evil is he conscious of possessing. Not so the child of God, for the more spiritually minded he becomes, the more conscious is he of his imperfections and of his utter inability of himself for anything good before God. Keep that phrase in mind because he'll say it again here. This is the only feature in the child of God which has no natural imitation. There may be a natural faith in Christ, a natural love for Christ, a natural following of Christ, and even a natural conviction of sin, all without salvation. But never is there a continued natural conviction of utter inability for anything good before God. This is entirely and always the result of a spiritual nature previously given. Now think about what he said there. Uh, this harkens back to the last chapter that we looked at, chapter 4. Um, but here Moore is pressing the point even, even further. Uh, in chapter 4, he pointed out that it was the sinner who felt his need of salvation most deeply before God who would ultimately flee to Christ and feel greater closeness to God and greater assurance of salvation. Here in chapter 7, he's making a similar point comparing the natural man versus the spiritual man. He's saying the natural man looks at his religion and is satisfied with himself. And he doesn't see his sin for the evil that it truly is. Whereas the spiritual man sees his sin so clearly and continually that indeed uh, his sin is ever before him, as David says in the Psalms, um, and he feels his utter inability for anything good before God. And therefore he puts his full faith and trust in Christ alone for his salvation. Um, I don't know if any of you have a you know, hard time going along with what Moore says here, kind of like I did initially when I first read through this, because it um, you know, maybe it's just the, the culture we're in or, you know, other influences, but it, it was hard, at least initially, for me to accept, um, you know, that, you know, there could be a natural faith in Christ, natural love for Christ, natural following for Christ, and even a natural conviction of sin, all without salvation. Um, but I do think that more does a good job of putting these qualifications on there. He says, you know, never is there a continued, not temporary, but continued natural conviction of utter inability for anything good before God. So he's saying that, you know, that is something that only is a possession of the true believer. Um, the natural man never feels that. He may feel it for a short time or, you know, temporarily, but it goes away. Uh, the true believer, this is you know, a, um, they say, a continued natural conviction, or sorry, continued conviction of sin, and not just sin in this, you know, sense that, oh, it's, you know, what I'm doing is not ideal, 
No, utter inability for anything good before God. So I think because Moore makes those qualifications, uh, it makes it a little easier to understand what he's getting at, that that's not something that we do unless we have uh, been born again by the Spirit. Um, and in addition, as I was working through this, it, it kind of helped me to think about the analogy of a child uh, when I was trying to understand what Moore is saying here. So you think about, you know, take example, or for example, a, a child growing up in a, in a home with parents who are Christians um, and say they're, you know, going to church at a church that's preaching the gospel faithfully. They're, they're getting that as they're growing up, um, doing family worship, you know, hearing the gospel proclaimed, reading the stories of the Bible, becoming familiar with those, uh, maybe studying in their schooling, studying uh, Bible history, you know, learning all of these things, and they come to accept all these things, they appreciate them, you know, they love them because, hey, these are the stories I grew up with, or, you know, maybe it's, you know, these things help provide meaning in my life, whatever, you know, that means when people say it, but, you know, it's not, you know, all of those things are good, they may even, you know, love Jesus as a person who, you know, they've come to know through all these stories, but unless God opens their eyes to the true depravity of their sin and grants them a true and continual repentance from that sin, uh, either as a child or later in life as an adult, then they're not saved. It's not the knowledge of these things or even appreciation of God's truths that save any of us. It's the work of God, you know, giving us a new heart, making us new. Um, by the work of his spirit. Um, it was the work of Christ at Calvary that atoned for our sin. Um, you know, so we need to keep that in mind when we are thinking about what is the source of our salvation. And when we truly understand the source of us, our salvation, then that will help us to feel uh, more confidently the, our assurance of salvation, our hope of salvation, because we've put our hope in the right place.